Hear ye, hear ye, word nerds. Be forewarned that this podcast contains body language of the modern and early modern varieties, so plan your listening accordingly. Or don't. That's a choice that you can make, but don't say we didn't warn you. I still can't get over that any part of a boat is called a poop deck. Yeah, I'm not sure what part of the boat is the poop deck because I am not a sailor. I think it's the, it's like a front part, not the mast, but it's like a flat front part. Yeah, how's that different than the bow? Oh, maybe that's not the bow. Maybe it's the flat back part. Okay, you know what? (laughs) I thought those were just directions, like aft and stern and like. The bow is like the pointy part. Okay, I'm not a boat person either. So I mean, I think I'm just aft gonna and shut stern up. Stern are the same thing because it's fore and aft. Oh well, all right then. Welcome to the Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show. We are your hosts, Jazz Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. And together we are Whamlet. And this week we are talking about everybody's favorite play, hashtag my least favorite play, Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah, it's not everybody's favorite play. No, it's actually like my second least favorite play, but also. Yeah. It's it's down there for me, too. But yeah, Yeah. Antony and Cleopatra it is. We're completing the canon, so it had to come up sometime. Yep. Here it is. So there you go. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and come back for more. Every week, we discuss a different play by our favorite guy, William Deborah Shakespeare, at what we like to call the 101 level. (laughs) That is the introductory stuff. Everything that you need to know to have a general understanding of the play and its major themes and some other cool stuff you'll get nowhere else, like our opinions about how bad this play is. (laughs) (laughs) And our feelings. I'm going to let it fly, y'all. I actively dislike this play. If it were up to me, we would just move right past it in our canon but i mean i don't actually care that much but i don't like this play yeah i don't like I hear this you. play i hear you it frustrates me i yeah. um in the spirit of fairness i i had some downtime a couple days ago i was driving to dc and i had about two and a half solid hours so i nice. listened to it i you know an audiobook happened that um the one that i downloaded was sir kenneth brana as mm. antony um i had no recollection until listening to that recording how much he trills his R's, which was weird. <laughs> um, he's very, very like this. Oh, and he, he trills his R's. Like he's, uh, I don't know if that's like an old school RP thing or whatever. Yeah, it must be. I guess it is. Yeah. But, um, but so it like, it was a decent production, but like I wanted to listen to it again and like, you know, really be, have it be fresh in my brain. And yeah, I still don't like it. <laughs> Everyone in it is trash. Yep. Everyone treats Cleopatra like trash, and I'm not here for it. I mean, Um, she treats everyone like trash. She does, too. Yeah, she does that, too. Yeah. So. Yes. Anyway, let's (sighs) let's get into it. Let's do the thing. Let's let's do the thing that we have to do, and then we can do the thing that we're going to do, which is bag on this play. Yeah, girl. Okay, (laughs) so uh, it's, it's rhetorical device of the week time. Oh, yeah, uh, because we're word nerds, each week we draw a random device from our handy-dandy rhetorical device flashcards. 
For actors and scholars, knowing these rhetorical devices helps us recognize patterns in Shakespeare's language, like trilling of R's. <laughs> not, re- not really, I'm kidding. It's not a so that we can... <laughs> So that it's not a rhetorical device? Okay, Get sorry. Um, so that we can gain a better understanding of what's being said and how it's being said. Basically, it helps us understand characters through their speech tactics. Now I, I just sound you. Scottish. <laughs> I hate you. Stop. Uh, you love All it. All right. Draw a card, pheasant. Pheasant. Okay, I'm going to give you the uh, same option I've given our guests recently. Yeah, I'm just yeah. going to name some colors. Uh, okay, purple. Blue. I want blue. Blue. Want blue. She wants blue. Okay, give I me a number blue. between one and three. Two. Da, 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 da. Ooh, I think you're going to like this one. This week, the rhetorical device is polyptaton. Polyptaton? I yes. remember polyptaton. Polyptaton. Do you remember it enough to hazard a guess? It's a repetition of a word in different forms. That's right. It's repeating a word, but as a different part of speech. Polyptaton. P-O-L-Y-P-T-O-T-O-N. Polyptaton. And the example uh, comes to us from Sir John Agant. From Richard too. He says, With eager feeding, food doth choke the feeder. Feeding so f- food and feeder. Yeah. 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 That's a pretty good one, I think. It's also some nice falliteration. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Double repetitions overlapping. I love, you know, how these rhetorical devices are so layered and they overlap. So, like, don't think that just because... You find one rhetorical device in a sentence, you're done, because you're definitely not. There's so many things going on in all of them. So, polyptaton, that's what, that's what it is. Okay. It's now time for your burbage break with Master Master Hamlet. Alrighty, cats and kittens, buckle in for some hot knowledge. So we're getting down to the wire on burbage breaks. They are going away. Uh, at the end of this season because we only do them in Shakespeare 101 episodes and we're completing the canon in uh, April. So just prepare yourself for that. This week, I want to talk to you about good old Ralph Crane. Uh, Ralph Crane is a scribe, was a scribe. He's not still a scribe. He's super dead. He was a scribe, uh, known especially for transcribing dramatic texts. Um, His earliest surviving dramatic transcript is a unique copy of uh, a Ben Jonson play called Pleasure Reconciled to Virtue, uh, which I frankly had never heard of until I went looking for more information about Ralph Crane, um, because fuck Ben Jonson. I said it. Uh, So this play... Pleasure Reconciled to Virtue was performed before King James on the 6th of January, 1618. So that's like exactly 401 years ago and one month, um, which is exciting if you care about that. (laughs) Basically, what he did was he just he transcribed a bunch of dramatic texts. That's essentially what I'm getting at here. Um, He also transcribed uh, Fletcher and Massinger's heavily censored play Sir John Van Olden Barnevelt. Uh, which is such a great name for a play. Uh, and that that text was marked for performance by the company's bookkeeper and was written before the play was first presented in 1619. So just some cool textual transmission. Um, in that particular instance, Crane seems to have represented the playwrights as well as the company 
in interfacing with the Master of the Revels, Sir George Buck, and probably his work on the copy texts for Shakespeare's first folio started pretty quick after that. So that's where we get the Shakespeare connection. We know that Crane uh, worked on preparing texts for printing the first folio. We know that he must have begun to do this work before February 1622, which is when composition printing began, Also, because the first play in the collection, which is The Tempest, came from his pen. So besides The Tempest, the folios Two Gentlemen of Verona, The Merry Wives of Windsor, Measure for Measure, and The Winter's Tale all derive from Crane's transcripts. Uh, in addition, the copy for the folio Cymbeline and Othello have also recently been attributed to Crane, um, and he's also attached to the copy for the folio to Henry IV. So around April of 1622, which was during the printing of the Shakespeare folio, Crane evidently copied a number of collaborative plays all of which bear stage directions added by the King's Company bookkeeper, the Kingsman Company bookkeeper. He is the most prominent literary scribe of the first part of the 17th century, and he was a significant agent in the transmission of plays written by several major Jacobean playwrights. Uh, his preparation of printer's copy for Shakespeare's first folio had profound textual consequences on the eight plays with which he's been associated. Um, it's just kind of cool that like we know who he was and what he did and we can point to his work. The question that I can see forming in the brains of many of our listeners and perhaps also you, dear Aubrey, is how do we know that it was him who did the thing? Um, that's that's a that's a an area of scholarship with which I am woefully unfamiliar. It has to do with handwriting analysis and minims, textual I bet. Yeah, minims probably. Uh, textual transmission of all kinds. Um, I'm I'm not a book historian. As much as I would like to pretend that I am that or could be that, I am not that. Um, so I don't know. But Ralph Crane, he copied down a bunch of plays. They made it into the folio. It's exciting that we know who did that. Yeah, yeah, it totally out. is. All right. That was your Burbage Break with Master Master Hamlet. All right, we are jumping into the summary portion, and we always kick that off with a five-word unhelpful title. Now, for mine, I can't take credit for making it up myself because I didn't. It was actually passed to me from my mom. Oh. Uh, yeah, she actually, I, I don't... I uh, Yeah, she uh, had a friend. This is the story that I learned. She had a friend in grade school who was like a really good cartoonist and satirist. And uh, they drew a comic. She drew a comic strip of Cleopatra or they wrote a play. They did like their own play of it or something. She wrote her own script for it. Um, and her, her final line for Cleopatra in this thing that they created in the 50s uh, was, it was an asp gasp and you have to say it with that inflection so that is my five word unhelpful title it was an asp gasp i love that <laughs> um i mean i also did not make up mine i cannot take credit for it uh mine was written by uh guy uh you probably haven't heard of him uh william shakespeare oh uh, yes yes yeah yeah um the poop was beaten gold that is a convenient five word thing yeah that I, has poop in it yes <laughs> 
it is one it. of the best lines from this play. It is. Uh, good old Ina Barbus talking about hmm, the hedonistic days in Egypt talks yeah. about uh, a, a barge, a royal barge they were on and the poop. So the poop deck was beaten gold. <laughs> that's right. great awesome okay let's, let's yeah DP. let's do the dp the <laughs> dramatis persona out there get in touch and tell <laughs> us what the fuck a poop is also we could google we have the we technology. could could do where's the fun in that and i don't care enough frankly no. i don't care sometimes just it's funny to be wrong like about to talk stuff about poop and, and yeah just as many times as i can say poop and get away with it so we're gonna do the dramatis personae but only the really important ones all right, so we're going to start with Mark Antony, hereafter referred to as Antony. By uh, you. I by hate me. that. I hate Antony. I mean... Ant- Antony, there's a T in there. Yes, I mostly am going to say Antony. Oh, thank God. But I've been living in the South for a minute, and oh. it might come out as Antony. Anyway, so Mark Antony is all grown up from his Julius Caesar days, mm-hmm. and he is thinking all over Egypt with his dick. Uh, also, he is one of the three leaders of Rome. Indeed. Uh, then we have, of course, Cleopatra, the queen of Egypt. I'm pretty sure you've heard of her. No, never. Uh, we have Ina Barbus, who is Antony's bestie. We have Mardian, who is Cleopatra's chief eunuch, because there's more than one. He's yeah. the captain of the eunuchs. Yep. Uh, then we have Octavius Caesar, hereafter referred to just as Octavius. He is also one of the three leaders of Rome. Mm-hmm. Then we have Lepidus, the third leader of the three leaders of Rome. And rounding on out, we've got Pompey, who is leader of the rebellion against against the triumvirate, which are the three leaders of Rome. Uh-huh. Um, also, can we just take a minute to pour one out for Mardian, who made it into the summary, but not Charmian and Iris? Or Octavia. I'm surprised. Yeah. I mean, she's in there, but I just refer to her as Caesar's sister or okay. uh, Antony's wife. So gotcha. she has a name. I suppose we could name her. It's but Octavia her. and Octavius. So, yeah. yeah. Also, because I thought that would get confusing. So it was just like, ah, his sister, his wife. Yeah. Okay. Cool. That's true. We do, so, you know, we should name her at least. Give her the dignity of her name, I suppose. All right. So, Aubrey, why is this place so goddamn popular? <sighs> yep. But it so, is. It, it is. It is popular. It yeah, is popular like it. amongst, um, I don't even want to generalize who it's popular amongst, but it is, uh, I will say this, it is, it is often marketed, actually, the only way I've ever seen it marketed, it both in print uh, and like in, you know, marketing sort of campaigns involving like photos and whatever, um, it is the quote unquote mature love story because mm-hmm. unlike Romeo and Juliet, unlike many of uh, Shakespeare's other plays, there's not the ingenue parts. The the two people in, you know, in this haze of love are definitely in their middle age. They are past their prime. Um, sure. And and so it's it's nine times out of ten, the word used is Shakespeare's mature love story. Right. Um, the thing is, though, is that they're pretty fucking immature. Mm. Like, they spend a lot of time waffling about each other. Well, not about each other, but yeah, actually they do. They waffle a lot about each other, just the way teenagers do. Yep. Uh, maybe there's some really deep subtext going on about how love turns us all into dumb teenagers. I don't, I don't think so. 
because Shakespeare didn't really do subtext, but mm-hmm. um, I mean, maybe he did. We'll talk I mean, about I've that also later. never seen Cleopatra played by an age-appropriate actress. Never. Which no. is weird if you're going to bill it as a mature love story. Okay, I will correct myself. I have seen that one time. The one okay, time I once. have seen... Out of yeah, how many productions I, have you I've, seen? I've seen Antony and Cleopatra at least three times. Sure. The one we did at ASC a couple of years ago was almost there. Almost there. The woman playing Cleopatra was in her mid-30s. Okay, she was yeah. Mid-30s. Almost there. But she should be like 50. She should. Um, and then the one I saw most recently after there. that was in, well, that's almost, like saying hey, it's better you than being almost 50. It's better than her being 20. Sure. You know, it's better than being sure. some like actual ingenue, which sure. I have seen. And it's icky because somehow they always managed to get Antony right. I almost said Antony myself. This is Antony. Um, I somehow, somehow they always seem to find a middle-aged man to feel up on a young woman. Yep. Um, but no, I, uh, the last time they did it at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, 2016, 2015, 2016, 2016, um, they did it age appropriate. Uh, Miriam Lauba and Derek Lee Whedon were both at least in their fifties. Derek Whedon might actually, I think be in his sixties, but like they were definitely age appropriate. Good. Um, and, and so, but that was the only time. That's the only sure. time I've ever seen that. Um, and they, they did an okay job. I, I think, uh, I wish ugh, I wish now that we had gone to see the Rafe Fiennes and Sophie Okonedo one when it came to town and he live. Because Rafe Fiennes, again, to prove my point, Rafe Fiennes for sure is in the right age demographic. Sophie, Sophie. Okonedo, I don't know. She's in her 40s at least. Is she? Yeah, she is. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. She reads a lot younger than that. Yes, she does. Right, and that's well, just one of the genetic blessings of brown skin is that revoke. she just doesn't she looks ageless. Sure. Um, but she's definitely at least in her 40s. Um, the well, only reason I know that her. is because I remember seeing her face in the Ace Ventura movies like way back in the day, 20 years ago. She was, she in, the, was in the she was in the sequel. I shouldn't say movies. She was in Ace Ventura, wow. too, when he goes like to Africa or some shit. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she's sure. the African princess. And that was at least 20 years ago. And she was a yep. she was real young then, so like she's at least in her forties. Okay. So, um, but so anyway, back to the back to the yeah, point, which is that it's the mature, to... it's the yeah, it's the mature love story. Also, Cleopatra is viewed by many actresses as a bucket list role for reasons that only the patriarchy can explain. Because I don't get it. Neither. She's terrible. Yeah, I she don't sucks. like her. I she don't like her really at all. Have good speeches. I'm. Two, yeah, maybe. Yeah, I I have feelings about it, but I'm gonna save them until I talk right. about the other thing that we talk about in gossip cool. because Great. it relates yeah. to that. Let's talk so, about the summary. Then. Moving on. Yep. All right, uh, let's do it. Summary. It's summary time. Okay, so we will now summarize Antony and Cleopatra for you in a segment that this week we are calling hashtag geopolitical machinations. That's what it is. Yep. Lots of it. Yep. So strap in, babies. Here we go. I'm ready when you are. 
Antony is head over heels for Cleopatra and he stopped doing everything except for hanging out with her and fucking her and doing her because hashtag he got a dick and he's thinking with it. Uh, then he receives news that his wife has died and he decides that really he should go back to Rome. So that's what he's going to do. Cleopatra gets real angry about it because she's like, nah, stay so you can give me that sweet D, which like, ew, but whatever. Uh, in Rome, Octavius and Lepidus are annoyed with Antony's behavior and concerned about the threat from Pompey. Geopolitical machinations are afoot. Mm. In Act 2, there's more geopolitical machinating. Octavius and Lepidus reunite with Antony and they make nice with each other by having Antony marry Octavius's sister, Octavia. So creative. Antony's friend Ina Barbus tells the Romans about the extravagant bacchanalia of living in Egypt. Antony decides to go back to Egypt and to Cleopatra. In Egypt, Cleopatra finds out that Antony got married and vents her spleen on the messenger, that poor guy. Pompey meets with the triumvirate, Octavius, Antony, and Lepidus, and they reach a peaceful settlement through some more geopolitical machinations. Then they get drunk and dance and talk about crocodiles. In Act 3, there's some more geopolitical machinating that doesn't involve Pompey, Antony, Octavius, or Lepidus, and it's boring, so we're skipping it. Uh, Cleopatra's servant tells her that Antony's new wife is ugly and old and lame and stupid, which she's definitely not. Antony is mad at Octavius and sends his wife to hash it out, so his wife... Octavius's sister, Octavia, he sends her to hash it out. Offstage geopoliticism happens, and suddenly Lepidus has no more power, and also Pompey has been defeated, question uh, mark? Then we find out that Antony has returned to Egypt and named himself and Cleopatra the Emperors of the Orient. So guess what? It's time for some more geopolitical machinations! Yay! Antony def- decides to fight Octavius at sea, which is dumb, and he loses, partly because Cleopatra follows him and distracts him, uh, and then he gets mad at her and Jesus, this act is 13 scenes long and most of them are about boring geopolitical machinations. Antony and Octavius keep fighting. Enobarbus switches sides because Antony is behaving like a goddamn child. End of act three. Act four. Everybody gets ready for battle over the course of a zillion goddamn scenes. Enobarbus feels bad about switching sides and resolves to die. Somehow, Antony beats Octavius and then Enobarbus dies. Everyone gets ready for battle again, and Jesus, this act is 15 goddamn scenes long. Antony's army fails, and in the second round, he gets mad at Cleopatra because somehow it's her fault? Because she's a woman? Or something? Cleopatra tells Mardian to tell Antony that she killed herself, and then she hides. So then Antony decides to for real kill himself, but he doesn't quite manage it, and instead he's just really badly wounded. And then all of his servants have to carry him to Cleopatra, and it's like, dude, can you just fucking stop and think for once before you act? You dum-dum. Antony and Cleopatra exchange promises of love, and then he dies, and she decides to actually kill herself, and this is only goddamn act four, and we still have so far to go before everyone is dead, and this is play is fucking over. <laughs> okay, in act five, fucking finally, Octavius learns of Antony's death, and he sends a messenger to tell Cleopatra that he's gonna treat her right. Mm-mm. But then the messenger actually just captures Cleopatra and takes away all her stuff so she can't kill herself, so then she has a snake snuck in. Haha. <laughs> snake snuck uh, and lets it bite her and she dies and then her attendants die and everyone is dead thank god and then octavius comes in and he pontificates and decrees that she'll be buried with antony and ding dong the play is over hallelujah four minutes yes <laughs> sorry 
don't be. It's fine. Just vent your spleen like Cleopatra on yeah. that poor unsuspecting messenger. Yeah. So let's talk about this mess. Let's let's talk about it. Go cool. go go. Go All you. Right. I don't you have first. a lot. I don't have a lot. No worries. Uh, I do. I I've have got a ton. Some of these uh like quick hits. Quick hits. Okay. Great. So um this is a little performance history for you. So Cleopatra, obviously, or maybe not obviously, but if you know things about Renaissance drama, obviously, was originally played by a male actor, a young male, but Somehow, the role has become one of the most challenging and attractive Shakespearean roles for mature actresses. Mm-hmm. It is the largest verse role for women in the canon. I don't know. The New Oxford calls it his most demanding tragic female role, which I don't know how we're quantifying that, but okay, New Oxford. She's also... Uh, the. Role of Cleopatra is one of the only female leads to like really and truly dominate the end of her play, especially because, you know, Antony is dead at the end of Act 4. So she gets all of Act 5 or, you know, most of Act 5, which I think is only like 600 lines, but still. So there's that. Uh, Historically, Cleopatra was Greek, Egyptian, you know, Middle Eastern. Uh, Mediterranean. Um, in the play, however, she is called Tawny, Black, Gypsy, and Foul Egyptian, which uh, are not particularly flattering terms and no. carry some icky racist connotations. Mm-hmm. So there's that. Um, also, this is wild, and I kind of can't believe it, but Cleopatra was never played in a major production by an actress of color until 1988. Yeah, I believe that. I mean, I, I guess it. I do too, actually, but also it, bonkers. I think it's bonkers. Yeah, that's stupid. Yeah, it's real, real dumb. And we'll talk more about that when it's my turn, because I have feelings yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, moving from performance history into theater history, uh, the play premiered at the Globe. Uh, it also had an indoor staging at the Blackfriars. Those are very different stages. This play, I think, is too big for the Blackfriars, having seen it at the Blackfriars and been like, mm, this play is too big for the Blackfriars. So that's how I feel about that. <laughs> um, yep. Quick thing about source texts. Uh, uh-huh. This the The text, the events that happen in the play are mostly based off of Plutarch's lives, but also Shakespeare is a magpie. We know this and he pulls in stuff from other sources as well, but largely it comes from Plutarch's lives. And the only surviving text that we have was published in the folio. We don't have a quarter of this. So that's it. That's what I've got. Yeah. Cool. Well, thank you. Yeah. All right. So on the production side, first a little bit about language. Um, first thing I noticed, uh, is that there's a snake and serpent foreshadowing everywhere, like all over this text, um, which is kind of nuts, but also like predictably Shakespeare. Cause of course Shakespeare's going to drop in like little foreshadowing nuggets, like serpent, 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 serpent. You're welcome. Cause once you hear me say that, you're never going to not be able to pay attention to it when you see a, uh, another production of this play. Also, I, uh, because in Jess's and my program at the Shakespeare and performance program at Mary Baldwin, um, 
Dr. Ralph Allen Cohen, this is his favorite play. And I only mention that because when I was combing through my Norton that I used as a graduate student um, for, you know, quotes and stuff to pull, I have a bunch of notes that I took like directly onto the page of my Norton um, of Ralph's thoughts. And mostly they, um, the ones that still make sense that aren't just words or acronyms. There's a lot of language around looking and seeing throughout the play. And it's, uh, and I'm passing this on just as again, try to give this play a fair shake, even though I dislike it. Um, there's, there's language about looking and seeing. This is a play about seeing and being seen, uh, according to Dr. Ralph. So if you've ever been Ralphed about this play, this is, that's primarily where he's going to begin is that. Adorable. Yeah. Oh, so, cute. and it, but it helped, it helped, you know, cause yeah, again, yeah, yeah. to see things through yeah. Ralph's eyes. Um, there are maybe some staging challenges for the, for the sea battles. Maybe, um, yeah, I, I mean, like, you they know, happen off stage. they do, they happen off stage. They are described, uh, in typical like Greek play fashion, really like big events are just described. So, you know, you can choose to stage that if you want this play to be even longer than it already is, but like, don't do that. You don't need to. Um, there is one big staging issue. Your um, this plays buck basket, if you will, which is just my shorthand for the the really hard thing that you're going to have to stage in every scene. Your your buck basket for this is is what happens when uh, Antony, who is basically hobbled by his own botched suicide attempt, needs to be lifted up into Cleopatra's like safe lair. So in the, at the end of the play. Uh, Cleopatra has uh, hidden herself away, presumably in like a tower type of place, to keep herself protected from the Romans and from Octavius, who is coming to conquer her and like take her captive. And of course, like she wants to let Antony in, but he's hobbled and there is a distance between them. They have their own kind of balcony scene at the end of this play. And it's sort of terrible and it's really hard to stage. Like, how do you do it? You know, it's so it's, it's something to think about ahead of time. Like, how are you going to lift a full grown man? If you want to, like, do you have levels in your theater? Uh, how are you going to levy him up there? Um, or not? How are you just going to show it in some way? But it's the thing. It's the thing you're going to have to plan around um, just on a very practical level. So be thinking about that. It's your buck basket, mm -hmm. the old people's balcony scene where the, yep. <laughs> <laughs> where, where she refuses to come down because she's like, no, they're going to trap me. And he's like, but I want to die in your arms. <laughs> it's it's kind of silly. The next thing is, and and maybe this is why the mature audiences like it so much, um, is that the language in this play, in much of it, not all of it, we know, despite the geopolitical machinations, much of the language in this play is sexy F. Like, and it is sexually explicit. I think probably some of the most explicit in the canon. Um, not a whole lot of subtlety or nuance or metaphor in things like this, says Antony. Here is my space. The nobleness of life is to do thus, i.e. fucking. When such a mutual pair and such as twain can do, in which I bind on pain of punishment the world to wheat, we stand up peerless. Um, now, keep in mind, I heard these lines fresh with Kenneth Branagh's voice in my ears and <laughs> in the recorded production. It sounds very much like they are squishing, um, like in the moment. It was kind of gross. I'm like driving. I'm on the interstate. and I'm like, oh, Kenneth Branagh. He says, last night you did desire it. She says, 
Oh, happy horse to bear the weight of Antony. And this one, which makes me mad, but also is proving my point. Royal wench, she made great Caesar lay his sword to bed. He plowed her and she cropped. Gross. Yeah, that's when, of course, because, you know, the men talk about Cleopatra throughout this play as though she's a giant hussy. Um, and she has had and known many lovers and had kids by all of them. Um, it's a it's a subtle point in this text. But Antony and Cleopatra do have like a brood of children together. Um, before the play starts, they have kids. <laughs> so many babies. Speaking of Cleopatra, um, you better cast a woman of color as Cleopatra. Otherwise, you are dead to me. End of story. As just pointed out, she is referred to as Tawny and other uh, really negative uh, epithets about her brown skin several times. Also, she's fucking Egyptian. And yeah, I know that like ancient Egypt, they intermarried a lot, you know, all throughout the Mediterranean. She might have been a little lighter skinned or maybe olive skinned, whatever. Needs to be a woman of color. God damn it. It just needs to be. Also, cast both of your actors age appropriately, please. And thank you. I don't want some like little ingenue getting pawed on by some 60 year old man. I don't need to see that. Don't nobody need to see that. It's icky and gross. Speaking of casting Cleopatra, in my opinion, this is a tough part because it's a woman and a really epic woman written by a man. And even though he's one of my favorite guys, she smacks of everything degrading all of the stereotypes about quote unquote femininity that men have always imposed on women since time immemorial. So you're going to get ladies, brace yourselves. You've got a woman here who is impetuous to the point of almost childishness. Um, she, she plays games with her lover, um, pretending to be dead and feigning, swooning and like bunch of bullshit, man. That's making all of us look bad. She's, she's tossed around by her emotional whims. She's a completely emotional being and that's difficult to play to say the least it is one it's going to be very difficult for your actress to connect to this woman unless they themselves are like this so like finding finding cleopatra's humanity is going to be a challenge i think it's in there for a really skilled actor but um but it's it's you got to dig through a bunch of male bullshit and uh the men talk about her. They objectify her in and out of her presence, including Antony. Um, actually, pretty early on in the play, he's he has an aside to the audience about like, ugh, I better leave this bitch soon. She's going to drag me down. All of the men in this play are trash. Just seriously, there's nothing redeeming about any of them. Like nothing. None of them shows me anything by the end that makes me want to be on their side, want to root for them, want to forgive them. Like... There are some shitty men in other Shakespeare plays, no doubt, no doubt at all. Most of the time, though, if those men are meant to be heroes, they do something. They are penitent. They have, you know, like Leontes, they undergo years of working on themselves and like asking for forgiveness and knowing that maybe by the end, even then they may not have earned it. Like none of the men in this play do anything like that. Um, and it makes me hate them, which is part of my frustration with this play. But anyway, Cleopatra finally sticks 
this sticks it to all of the men by killing herself instead of being paraded around like a trophy by Octavius, which, yes, is a way of claiming agency. But you know what? She has to die to do it. And that's shitty. She has to squash everything that is powerful and awesome about herself. She's a goddamn queen. And she's reduced to that. So, yeah, that's part of the tragedy. But it's also a a frustrating storyline. If you're trying to tout this as a powerful female role um, and trying to get actresses to want to play this part, like, that's shitty. That's just shitty. Also consider how this entire play is a masterclass of how the patriarchy hurts men. Just think about it. Like, the very first lines in this play begin with two dudes, I forget who they are, they don't matter, complaining that Antony is in love, which I think is debatable, but the fact that he's showing it openly, showing his affection, showing his feelings, makes him weak and womanish. And God knows nobody wants to be womanish because to be a woman is to be bad, to be less than, to be weak. And yeah, I know, I know, I know that things were different in Shakespeare's time, but I don't give a fuck it's 2019. I've had my fill of this nonsense. I'm ready for something else. Show me an Antony that is not phased by everyone else's toxic masculinity, and I might just watch this play and enjoy it. But until you can show me that, I'm not interested. Another thing you need to think about pragmatically is the culture clash happening in this play between the very rigid Western Roman world uh, and the exotic, sexy, othered east of Egypt uh, and how that impacts the story and the world building that you're doing in creating a production. First off, get a good dramaturg who can help you contextualize. Also, think about the ways you're going to show those two different worlds that's not, find a way to do it that's not exploitive or exoticizing ancient Egypt in a way that is not helpful. So think about that too. Yeah. Um, So much to to think about. I have so many feelings. Directly quote my dear friend, Molly Sarema. You know her. You love her. Mm -hmm. Uh, Antony Cleopatra is a play about impotence. Mm. Everyone, every every large character in this play is impotent in some kind of way. Um, Mm. Literally, figuratively, both, neither. Not neither, because I just said they all are, um, <laughs> including including Cleopatra. She's yeah. wildly impotent. You know, it's I don't, I don't like this play. I don't my I mean, everything that you have said, retweet, hashtag endorse. Like, yes, I co-sign everything you said. <laughs> but one of the things that really sticks in my craw about this play for me is that Antony and Cleopatra are not sympathetic characters. I think they have no redeemable qualities. And I don't want to watch two people who suck, suck together and bring down a couple of empires Word. with their love. Like, yeah. love in air quotes. I yeah. mean, they're... It, in this play, I don't think it's represented as love. I think it's represented as lust. Oh, definitely. Which is not to say that that is not a powerful emotion and that that cannot be accompanied by love. But I I think it's represented in, you know, if love is the noble emotion, lust is the flip side of that coin. Right. And I think Shakespeare made that choice to go with the the baser quality. Yeah. 
right? I'm not interested. I'm just not interested. And to underline all of this, as we always say, and as I always say in my own life, I'm always willing to be convinced, but no one and nothing has convinced me yet. Um, yeah. And and my my feelings about Antony and Cleopatra have been crystallizing over many, many years since the very first time I saw it at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in 2003. Oh, so I saw that one. 16. Yeah, I didn't fall asleep during it, <laughs> but nearly it was close. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the lights were great. That's pretty much all I remember about that because I was just staring at the lighting, like trying to stay awake. Was that indoors? Um, was that in there? Yeah, it was in the new. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Got renamed yes. to whatever it's called now. Yes. Um. Anyway, I I'm not interested. I'm not interested. Yeah. I'm just not interested. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to say that like we'll do our due diligence, and when we do a 201 or a 301, we'll get a guest expert who is interested. But I. We might not do that. So, I mean, yeah, we got to find somebody. It's our podcast. Like, we have our right. We're allowed to have opinions. Damn right. Now, I hear you. I'm just waiting. You know, I know that reading, going back and reading the text is never going to make me feel anything different because I'm only seeing it with my eyes. You know what I mean? And, mm-hmm. like, same with listening to it. Like, I, I wanted to be fresh on it, but but really, like, it's going to take that transformative production. I, like you, have yet to yeah. see a production that changes my mind. And that's really what it's going to take is yeah. is a production with the something to connect to for me. Because right now it's a slippery rock and I got nothing to grab onto. I don't know shit about rock climbing, but I know you need things to grab onto. And I have nothing. Yeah. I yeah. got nothing. Yeah. I am slipping down that rock, about to belly sure. flop in the water. I'm just going to keep this metaphor going. It's painful. I, I, I would I, just like to point out that <laughs> rock climbing above water is probably super dangerous yeah i know i tried it one time by accident and it was bad lexi knows okay (laughs) actually we both know it was um story it's a real story so you know what i say we skip the game this week because i got too many goddamn feelings and we're already filling up like around an hour of sound fun Mm. has died this week (laughs) Antony and Cleopatra killed fun. Antony and Cleopatra killed the fun. We're moving on. I don't think we have any corrections to make. Uh, I don't think so. That I'm aware of. Great. Mm -hmm. Okay. Moving in to some hot, hot goss and why we're skipping the game. Really, it's just because I have too many feelings to pack into an hour. This is basically feelings corner. Oh, my God. Slash gossip. That's true. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Take it away. I want to hear everything. Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So. Um, one of the perks of my job is that sometimes I get to see really cool shows on the company's dime. <laughs> so uh, if you've heard of it, this show has been going around. It's a it's a one man show uh, written and performed by Keith Hamilton Cobb, um, who's an amazing African-American actor. If you're really, really deep into soap operas, you might know him because he's been on a couple of them. But that was like decades ago. Um, he has a show that he wrote called American Moore. Uh, M-O-O-R, American Moor. And it's uh, it's sort of a one-man show. There's a disembodied voice of a, of a white director, or in our case, um, it was at the, I saw it at the Anacostia Playhouse in D.C., and it's this tiny little black box theater. So what's his face? Hang on, I have the program. What's the man's name? Josh Tyson plays the director, a director, and he's like sitting actually in the back row uh, back there. But you really just hear his voice. You're not meant to see him. And this whole play is about 
it begins sort of about Othello and about Keith's love for Shakespeare. And my God, he's got that that trained, deep, resonant actor voice. You know what I'm talking about? Like he just has a gorgeous voice. So when he's speaking this these words, it's like reverberating in this room. And but really, ultimately, it it transcends both of those things, both Shakespeare, Othello. It it's really about race relations in America and the the really hard conversations we need to have um, about about representation and about listening to people of color and like white people shut up like we need to shut up and listen um and that's really that's really what it came down to and not only did i get to see this performance but part of the thing uh the folger had a partnership going with anacostia playhouse for this event so for teachers Teachers got to come to a pre-show discussion about teaching race uh, in your classroom. And then we got to stick around. They fed us, which was great. Um, but we got to stick around for a, for a post-show talk with Keith uh, and Josh, who was like sitting like the white guy in the corner who's not going to talk. He's like, I'm technically in the show, but I'm like not here, um, which was funny. So I got to hear from him in person afterwards, too, which was great. But the it's an 85 minute show where and like and it starts out, you know, the the sort of conceit is this man. It, it's really it's very autobiographical, but this show is actually going to be published at some point soon. So like other actors will be able to take it on. But right now, like, you know, Keith in the post show discussion said, you know, my character, what my character. So it's not it's not him, but it is him. Um so he's waiting for an audition and he's got a copy of Othello in his hand and it's a clearly like well-worn, well-loved edition um, of the text. Looked like a Folger edition, BT dubs. It's not. It's uh, the Bedford Shakespeare. Oh, is it? Okay, um, great. Yeah. I couldn't tell from far away. Kim Hall. And How I did know you know this, that? <laughs> I, know, I know this because it showed up uh, on Twitter over the weekend uh, and over the last week because the Bedford Shakespeare isn't in print anymore um oh. and the the publisher who owns them which i think is pearson um won't let the general editors of the series find a new publishing home oh. so these texts are just sort of they're not being printed and they're just being held mm -hmm. um and they're they're really good texts they're sort of halfway between a folger and an arden because they come with a lot of critical apparatus but it's like criticism yeah so in the in the back of the of the play it'll have like excerpts or full articles oh. of criticism about that text okay um which is really fascinating anyway the othello one was edited by kim hall and the the prop um in american war is falling apart yes it is trying they're trying to source a new one but you can't buy them oh i see yeah so he wanted the same edition as he's as he's been using yeah so he's yeah. been touring this show for like six years now um he took it to london he took it to the globe last year he's taken it to off broadway later this year um, I want him so bad to come to the ASC. Like, but anyway, so the conceit begins with that, with the actor. He starts out, you know, just talking about his his love of Shakespeare and and being a young actor and learning how to act and like going to his acting teachers and being like, I want to do the Titania speech. It's really cool. And and his teachers saying, like, try Othello, basically being pushed into Othello because he's a black man 
for no other reason than his skin color. Um, and then starts there. So, and it's, and it's personal and it's visceral and it's so funny at times, like laugh out loud funny, but so tragic and jarring. It sort of operates in like the, in a meta theatrical and also a theatrical space. So his character is waiting to audition and then actually goes into the audition and gets interrupted by the white director and they go back and forth. Um, but at the same time, like he steps out through the magic of lighting, which was new for me. I'm not used to lighting anymore. I was like, ooh, these, these lights, um, the warmth and the, you know, the not warmth, um, the fluorescence and whatever. But it, like he'll he'll step into a meta, meta theatrical space and he will talk to the audience. And I was in the front row. So and that was nice being able to connect with him. Like he did take lines to the audience about his experience and about he. So he goes through this this what turns out to be a really bad audition experience with this disembodied white person's voice basically shoving a an interpretation of Othello onto him that he refutes through the text he's like but it's here but here in the text is what's happening with Othello also I know what it's like to be this man because I too have been the only person of color in a room full of white people who, because of my achievements, trot me out like, you know, like a show pony and, and other things. And it, and it turns into this, like he, he breaks down and he's, he's so full of rage and he, um, you know, there are all these moments that he talks about leading up to it about like moments when he didn't speak up to his acting coach about, uh, why can't you just let me do the Titania speech? Why can't I be Hamlet? Why aren't you recommending that I play Hal or some other young guy? Why always Othello? You know, and and so like all of these times that he hasn't advocated for himself when he's just like stifled his anger for reasons that every black man understands, right? That you uh, need to sublimate your rage, especially in front of tender white people. And it all comes bursting out by the end of the performance. And, and he... Like, I tell you what, I I have a hard time in any performance, even in movies, when I see, like, really strong men break down. I, I, it just instantly makes me cry. And he's, and he's crying and he's mad, but they're like rage tears and he's so frustrated and like, whew, like, I'm still processing that. And I, and it was so moving uh and and so so special to witness um and i do feel like like i was bearing witness to something kind of incredible and meaningful but also like he not directly to me but i feel like his words about othello really took me to task on the assumptions i have made about the character of othello and about the play othello and there's he says something really beautiful about him and i'm see this is why i'm i feel really lucky because the teachers got some excerpts from the script <laughs> and a little yes. handout so i'm just going to read a little excerpt of what he said and i'm definitely not trying to recreate his performance in any way i'm just going to read the words um okay uh in and in that moment in that sacred moment i suddenly could not not care for othello I began rather to feel like I have a brother who can't defend himself. And you've been slapping him around for 400 years. Then coming in my face and trying to justify your behavior. You're going to tell me what's wrong with him? You're going to tell me you know his type? You're going to tell me about the family fucking resemblance? 
well, here I am. You called and not just because you and not because you was doing Richard II. So now what you going to do? Because now I'm here and I'm going to defend and protect this much maligned, misunderstood, mighty character, my brother's dignity, or maybe my own. Oh, my heart. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I so desperately want to see this production and yeah it's making me bananas that i haven't had an opportunity to do so yeah and i just he you know ironically he actually has never played othello he has somewhat stubbornly refused and and in the post-show talk somebody somebody asked him they were like have you since you know have you played othello is that kind of what this is based on um, this piece. And he said, no, I've never done it. Not to bag on my fellow actors, but every time I've seen Othello, it's been terrible and I want to direct it. And to me that, you know, I was just like, I, I had to search in my own memory. I've seen Othello several times. I cannot recall any of those times being a production directed by a person of color. Never, not once. Let alone a black man. And it made me think about the the decision makers that are in the room in a production or in a film who who is imposing this interpretation on on us of of Othello and that was ultimately my biggest takeaway was that like white directors don't need to direct this play anymore either or or if you are going to then you need to shut up and listen to the black man that you've hired to play Othello because he knows more about the Moors experience than you ever will that is what he says all the way through this performance is that he has he has lived this very similar experience and and no one will listen to him he in a rather desperate moment he says talk with me and listen really listen see me and it ends on on that kind of a note of like he his character tries to invite this director who is Basically, the the white director imposes this really dumb redirect during the audition. Like, okay, I've seen how you play it. Now do this thing because I have this notion about blah, 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 about the irrationality of jealousy. And he can't do it. <laughs> like he tries and he tries to do like put on the dog and pony show for this director and he just can't. Um, and it ends with him like kind of letting that director have it, but also saying, let's talk about it. Talk to me. Like, I'm not going to get mad at you for the things that you say. And and please just admit that you're wrong about this thing that you don't know. You just don't know. And it's okay to admit that you don't know. So let's talk about it. And I, man, I'm I'm still processing it. I'm still, and I think I'm going to be for a while, which for me is like the sign of a really good piece of theater. And, uh, and, and that's okay. You know, I think doing the work in this, in this instance, just doing the work of social justice means that I do need to shut up and just think about stuff. They need to like really hear and rehear and think about what he has said and and what I can do about that in me and in what I do in my my work, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was so good. God, it just, was good. I just want to interject here yeah. because this is something you you and I have been talking about privately yeah. uh, a lot is that we'd really like to get more diverse voices on the podcast you know part of our mission statement is to lift up voices uh of underrepresented groups uh including women including grad students which i think we've been doing 
great at yeah. that part, but we, you know, we'd like more people of color. Um, we'd like more queer scholars. We'd like anyone who's not straight, white, cis. Yeah. But also we want those people too. But also those people, us included, hi, here's our platform. We're on it right now. But now that we have this platform, we'd like to use it for people who don't have have that platform yeah um as much as we can so you know if you're out there listening and you know someone or you are someone get in touch yeah um we'd love to have you yeah we really 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 would i that would just make my day that'd be great yeah um yeah anyway carry on you know and on a really positive note i met some really awesome teachers got to talk to peggy o'brien who's the head of education at the folger and she's a boss and i love her um <laughs> i just She's like us, Jess. She, we're going to be her in like 30 years. I would love to be her in any number of years. I would work the fuck She's out of the soldier. She's groovy as hell and like totally foul-mouthed. She don't care. Like, I love her. She is hashtag goals. But yeah, so like really generative discussion. It, it was just, it was quite an experience and it gave me lots and lots and lots of feelings. Okay, so let's um talk about let's talk about the dick bracket. That noise is just getting it's it's going places. I know. Uh, all right, so our most recent matchup um, was Barabbas versus Livia, mm, and yes. I think it's our tightest one that yeah. we maybe have ever had uh and i still don't know how i feel about the results but it is barabbas moving forward yeah so that's what we got well yep barabbas okay i mean really in terms of just quantity he takes it home just just by the numbers yeah all right this week we have <laughs> I almost I feel like this week is going to be a bit of a blowout. Uh, uh, this is also just worth mentioning our first matchup uh, of round three. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do you call the third? Is it the semifinals? It's, the it's quarterfinals? The, the elite eight. If we're oh. going by March Madness rules. Okay. Great. The elite eight. This is our yeah. first matchup in the elite eight. I do feel like this is going to be a bit of a blowout. It is Proteus. Versus the Duke from the Revengers tragedy. I mean, I think it could go either way. Really? I mean, yeah. that's some pretty dickish behavior on both sides. But I, I yes. doesn't the Duke do some like murdering and raping and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Proteus attempts some rape. Yeah, but Proteus has got name recognition. True. True. Yeah. The Duke doesn't even have a name. That's right. Yeah, he doesn't. He's just the Duke. He's he, yeah. In my opinion, I feel like the the duke should probably be the one to advance i feel like proteus has gone as far as he's gonna go because now he's he made it this far i mean but... really yeah i mean because you know he was an attempted rapist where where i mean he's up against actual rapists now so yeah. you know i mean if this were a prison yeah. yard he'd be the one taken out for sure so yeah oh my god can you imagine a prison yard of all of our dick bracket candidates they'd be shanking each other right and left it'd be terrible um so that's that's our matchup this week make sure you vote on it Hashtag dick bracket. Yay. Well, everyone, thank you so much for listening to all of our feelings. And you got dumped on. And I'm sorry. Everybody got dumped on with my feelings and my my rage. Um, we hope you leave the podcast more informed, though, than when you started. Or maybe we just kicked off a bunch of your feelings. I don't know. That's okay, too. 
Tune in next week for The Two Gentlemen of Verona 101. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to need your help for this yep, for this I quote. See. I see. Um, speaking of a masterclass in patriarchy and men saying things about Cleopatra, here we go. Age cannot wither her, nor custom stale her infinite variety. Other women cloy the appetites they feed, but she makes hungry where most she satisfies. For vilest things become themselves in her that the holy priests bless her when she is riggish. Mm-hmm. Way to make it wrong, Ina Barbus. Like, it sounds flattering, and all of a sudden he's like, yeah, she's a hoe, though. <sighs> Whamlet out. Whamlet out. If you liked this podcast, subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or Google Play. For show notes and other fun things, you can visit our website at www.hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. Or you can drop us an email at holla at hurlyburlyshakespeareshow.com. You can find us on Instagram at hurlyburlyshakes or at hurlyburlyshake on Twitter. The Hurly Burly Shakespeare Show was produced and edited by Jess Hamlet and Aubrey Whitlock. Our fantastic theme music was composed by Jonathan Shu. You can learn more about him at jonathanshu.com or find his albums on iTunes. All opinions you heard on this podcast are our own and are not at all affiliated with our institutions of work and or study. Gonna marry me, the first woman I see She's gonna love and do right by me Have a kid, have some family Gonna marry me, the first woman I see Hallelujah! Holy shit! Jesus! I mean, fucking seriously. Act 3 is 13 scenes. Act 4 is 15 scenes. What the goddamn fuck, William Henry Shakespeare? Get the fuck out. I don't like you anymore, you piece of shit. With this piece of shit play, I hate you. Go away. (laughs) Well...